This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. And this is Jesse. And I'm Dave Williams, the author of the Autumn Rain Trilogy. Fantastic. Uh, the, nice to have you, Dave. Yeah. Absolutely, gentlemen. A pleasure. Yeah, and the, the third book of the trilogy is out next week, right? Or this the week. Machinery of Light. The Machinery of Light comes out on Tuesday. Exactly. Tomorrow. Fantastic. Uh, uh, two more days. Yeah, not, not exactly. Well, it will That's be great. tomorrow by the time this goes out. <laughs> in, in, there we go. There, there we, we go. go. You bet. Well, I, I had the distinct pleasure of uh, finishing Mirrored Heavens yesterday. So uh, that's how much I've read of the trilogy, but I definitely will be continuing. Um, It it is uh, an extremely fast-paced book. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about out of the gate is it's written in um, present tense. Yeah. Right? What what, kind of made you decide that way? Uh, There were a couple of things. Um, I, I think partially because I thought that the present tense done correctly could achieve a kind of intensity and at the same time a kind of dreamlike surrealism. Um, but also because fundamentally this is a book about memory, right? I mean, the, 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 the main characters are suspect, their memories are suspect, they're espionage agents who can't trust their own memory. Um, and so in a sense, the present is the only reliable uh, 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 way they have of going about that. Um, there's also sort of a philosophical thing, I think, in the sense that, you know, if you have the past tense, you're privileging the narrative in some way, whereas present tense, you really don't know how it's going to end up. There's kind of a, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give back to the past tense in a sense, its own present, you know, make people see, well, this could go any way. We don't know what's going to happen here. Um, instead of having some sort of comforting, you know, resolution that's implied. Yeah, I can say, you know, it definitely seemed to increase the tension, in, in my opinion. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, you know, you kind of start off with, well, well, the whole book is kind of, you know, from, from this person's point of view, and then you switch to this person's point of view, each, you know, in sections. And uh, they're extremely fast and extremely tense, uh, pretty much throughout the entire novel. Mm-hmm. And that's only book one, so <laughs> I'm uh, definitely looking forward to, to continuing with it. Yeah, I mean, it's intended to sort of be, you know, that calm. I mean, I, you know, back to on the memory thing, I, 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 I pitched it to my agent originally as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind uh, meets James Bond, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, espionage, um, but at the same time, you know, you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, these agents. <clears throat> excuse me, these agents whose memories are getting wiped, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the perspective I was trying to set up. Yeah, well, it, yeah, I can sure see that. That's, that's great. Um, another aspect of this book that really captured me was the uh, extremely well-thought-out um, scenario you set up. Um, would you care to talk about that just a little bit? Sure. I mean, basically what you're looking at is, you know, it's set 100 years from now in a, in a second Cold War, right? So the, the entire Earth-Moon system is essentially divided between two rival superpowers. There was the, across the 21st century, now fairly detailed timelines, because I, I approach a lot of this from the perspective of 
what might be a plausible future history. Not not necessarily the future history, you know, that's definitely going to happen, or even that I think is most likely to happen, but a possible scenario. And I was always struck by as soon as the last Cold War was over, people were forgetting, you know, that mm-hmm. we had all these nukes pointed at each other. And this is a second Cold War that makes the first one look like a warm-up act. Space and cyberspace are weaponized. You have a new Eastern superpower, a combination of a resurgent Russia and a rising China that's arisen to challenge the U.S. Um, and so all the espionage, all the shenanigans, all the, uh, uh, the intrigue is occurring uh, within what is fundamentally a, uh, a future bipolar kind of setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the, the world is uh, divided pretty much down the middle. Um, you know, this book has, uh, again, I'm talking about mirrored heavens here. Um, it has a map of uh, the Eurasian coalition and allies and then the United States and allies, um, along with uh, the neutral nations. And then um, not only that, but it, it has uh, some appendices with it too. Um, but I, I recall reading something that uh, the appendices that you included are not everything that you created before you wrote this. No, there's a lot of stuff on the website as well, uh, autumnring2110.com, where you know I put an awful lot of uh, – I mean that was how I started, you know, was writing all that kind of material um, – you know, so hardware schematics and agent dossiers and, uh, you know, a whole theory of the future of war that I was drawing up, you know, for, for what does it mean when the center of gravity of war shifts into space? That in some ways was the genesis of the book. Um, you know, it's something the U.S. military interested in. I sort of said, well, what would that look like and how do we frame that? Essentially, that's a science fiction context at that stage. Mm-hmm. It's like rods from God and that sort of thing. The, uh... Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the idea that, like, you know, once you control a high ground, there's, you know, little you can't do. Um, and, it, and it's also a function, I think, of, um, you know, space is already militarized, right? That's, that's why it's so interesting when, you know, people are complaining about, you know, arms races in space and whatever, and we've got to stop this. It's inevitable. And the reason it's inevitable is that space is already militarized. Every time a... GI in Iraq uses GPS, you know, mm. that is using space-based assets in order to, uh, in order to uh, militarize, in order to, you know, uh, draw on ground advantage. You know, we, we, the U.S. Army is superior or supreme from a conventional perspective because we have the eyes in the sky. Therefore, any opponent trying to take us on has to deprive us of those eyes in the sky. So you're going to get a point where you're seeing it's a little like the early stages of World War One, right? Both sides start using aircraft for recon, and it's only a matter of time at that point before, before the aircraft actually start shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. Um, you know, a couple of items from the beginning of the book. Um, I, I recall that uh, the, the city <clears throat> there was a city there. I forget the name of the city, but um, the terrorists that were busy in that city. We're lighting things on fire in order to blind the satellites, and uh, that was an interesting aspect. And then, yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead by all means. Oh, and then the the other main factor in this book that we haven't mentioned yet are these um, razors that um, can get into to the networks and um, do their thing inside there. You know, uh, so a couple of the agents in this book are, are razors, and they basically just jack right into the network, you know, using their mind and can uh, navigate that way. 
and uh one of the cool scenes that i i remember out of this book is uh um there was a guy wearing a suit it was marlo right wasn't he wearing a suit that was all electronic yeah. and stuff and you know it enhanced him kind of like in uh, starship troopers i guess and then mm-hmm. um he had this razor with him who and they were both running away from a whole bunch of people that were also wearing suits that were chasing them but she able to jack into the network and was disabling people behind him as they ran. <laughs> yeah, was, it's, it sounds like a movie. It's, it was uh, kick butt. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's, it's kind. Of, you're playing in a sense with that kind of dichotomy, right? Between mechs who are specialized in physical combat. You know, they're wearing power and armor, and they're good at you know knocking down doors and taking names, preferably. And then, and then the razors. They're kind of you know. Uh, a la William Gibson's, you know, net runners or zone runners. You know, those are the ones who are working the working the net itself. And and you and you try to prove the, the bit about weaponization of space earlier. I mean, the, the the remorseless logic under which you have to operate with this is that there's real time monitoring twenty four seven from the heavens. You know, going on at all times. Um, and so everything becomes very sort of you know stealth or indoors or you know. Uh, uh, only occurs if you're hacking the systems involved, that sort of thing. But basically, you have razors and mechs who pair up with one another. Um, uh, and, and again, I was drawing a little bit of a leaf from William Gibson. I mean, he does this at the end of Neuromancer in the Straylight run between mm-hmm. Paul and Case. Um, you can think of, in a sense, my razor mech pairings as homage to that. Um, Marlowe and Haskell, Jason Marlowe and Claire Haskell being perhaps the uh, uh, the, 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 the main such paradigm, you know, as we discussed earlier there, they've also got a bit of a memory problem, but we can get to that in a few minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really interesting, you know, as we're sitting here discussing it, you know, I didn't think of this at the time, but, you know, that's one of the cool things about discussing books is that, um, you know, thinking about this in the context of what's going on right now and how, yes, you know, the United States and the allies in the, in the current war that's going on we do have the ability to destroy everything, right? But mm-hmm. yet that's not the kind of war we're in. Um, so that whole thing is kind of changing. Yeah, we can put a whole bunch of troops on the ground, but is that helping us right now? Um, when, you know, it, the war is a different kind of thing than, we, than we've had before. Yeah, and this was one of, one of the things that I, you know, drew up as, you know, the conceptual backbone behind a lot of this work was is an essay that's online at the website, you know, autumnrain2110.com forward slash future of war. It was an essay I presented at uh, uh, Library of Congress last year, uh, National Academy of Sciences, which was, you know, you know, more fact than science fiction in a sense, which was to say that, you know, there is coming a point, I think, where, I mean, right now insurgencies have the advantage, right? I mean, they're going to be hiding in the cities they you know it's this whole fourth generation warfare where guerrilla movements have the advantage but i do think that the weaponization of space and perhaps cyberspace will ultimately return the advantage to nation states they'll be kind of a retooled nation state but once you have 24 7 once you can hit any point on the planet at the speed of light and that's what will be happening in this new paradigm of warfare once space gets weaponized and directed energy attains maturity that's not going to be an end to those sort of insurgencies. I mean, they're, they're, they, they, but you, it'll be the culmination of the trend you see right now, which it'll be confining them to underground and to the cities, uh, to the to the megacities. And so the question then becomes: 
well, how monitored are those cities? And the cities, you know, in the United States or in Russia, obviously 24-7 surveillance cameras everywhere. The cities in the third world, you know, a little less, you know, a little more loosely governed, as it were. And so that's why you see a lot of the insurgencies in South America uh, during Mirrored Heavens. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a, a difficult world coming. <laughs> well, who's, who's got control of those buttons is the going to be the question. Who's got control of the buttons? And also, you know, I mean, you could easily, particularly when you look at, you know, I mean, the Cold War was a very intense hair trigger, right? Like in any moment, you know, they could be firing their nukes over the pole or the Russian subs in the Chesapeake could be flinging nukes at D.C. We might have a few minutes notice. But with speed of light weaponry, it could be almost instantaneous. You may end up seeing humans actually taken out of the decision loop. Um, like literally warfare or at least the initiation of warfare could be near automated, uh, which is a particularly scary uh, idea. Uh, That's like uh, a couple of things. Just what you're talking about makes me think of other science fiction. So War Games, obviously, uh, the original movie from the early 80s uh, with the Whopper computer, you know, engaging automatically. Um, You know, Cheyenne Mountain does have computers uh are they uh are they the guys running the u.s uh, space based uh, weapons program that's the sort of the, the the sort of open question is how do you make sure that these things don't malfunction i mean i i didn't i didn't take it in that direction right i mean there's never you know the computers tend to be under the control of the humans i i you know i could have written that book right that wasn't the book i wanted to write the sort because of, i felt that had been done before in terms of you know, Skynet is off the leash and now right. everybody and, you know, giant metal creatures roam the landscape. You know, I was going in a different direction to say those computers, even if those computers are work as planned, you know, even if everything functions as it should, it still has tremendous implications for international relations being on a hair trigger and the militarization of these societies. I mean, you start to see that in the Cold War. You start to see that after 9-11, right, where it's you know, you're with us or you're against us and, you know, the enemy could be within. I mean, that's the perpetual tension in the modern age, you know, because we're fighting opponents who are taking advantage of the very globalization they despise to move across borders and threaten free societies. What's that going to look like several decades from now was the question I was trying to answer with Mirrored Heavens. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, just thinking, you know, if you couple that with uh, commercial space flight, and, and things, you know, if the if the government is not controlling uh, absolutely everything that goes up, you know, how long would it be before, uh, you know, uh, certain private groups would have uh, their own weaponry up there too? Well, and, that, and that's the thing, right? Is that that in some ways is the uh, uh, is why I think ultimately governments will start to control what's going up. Is that you know this 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 flowering of, of, of commerce that's going on right now to get us into orbit, I think, is a allowable trend. But, you know, you're increasingly seeing them, you know, work closely with NASA, work closely with the government. It's two different futures, though, right? I mean, in some ways, this was my, this was my challenge with a lot of old guard cyberpunk is the notion that the state would wither away and that, you know, that you'd have corporations running the show never really rang true for me. For me, it was all about, you know, I think ultimately nation states will get larger and bigger and uh, more ferocious in a certain sense. And, you know, if power grows out of the barrel of a gun, 
what would that look like when these nation states essentially, you know, take control of uh, of space and the internet? I mean, you know, we, we with the internet, with cyberspace, it's easy to lose track of the fact that these depend on physical assets. I mean, there's you know a lot of talk out there about how you know this is information that'll set us free and you know let a thousand flowers bloom and that sort of thing. But ultimately, if I control your satellites and I control your phone lines, I control your internet. Um, no matter how many manifestos on the freedom of information you've written. Um, and, and so I think that that was sort of part and parcel of it, right, is that what I think a lot of people miss is that the weaponization of space goes hand in hand with the weaponization of cyberspace. And that could make for one particularly scary future. Um, so it's a different kind of cyberpunk. You know, instead of having these uh, street cowboys and samurai hackers, you have – hackers and agents who essentially work for the United States government in that sense, or at least for one branch of its intelligence units. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're playing out with their dilemmas. Right. Uh, did you, uh, did you uh, take any inspiration from The Moon is the Harsh Mistress? With, uh, you know, the, the high ground being the moon in that case. But I, I, I'm given to understand that you've got uh, at least some scenes set on the moon as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, and one thing I'll say about the moon as a harsh mistress is, is Heinlein is really, really good at topo- describing topography. I mean, he never really kind of gives you the layout or exactly how the lunar cities work, uh, the lunar city, but, but, but you're nonetheless, it always feels very, very real. I mean, he's obviously, you know, that's why he's a sci-fi grandmaster, but mm-hmm. that was just a sort of a, a particular thing of his I noticed in, in reading it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, Heinlein's the guy who said, look, if I have a a mass driver and enough rocks at L5 at the libration point, I control the world. And, you know, there was a bit of that being drawn from it, right? I mean, there's a lot of sort of that mass driver conflict. And, and so in a sense, what you're looking at is a expanded topography of future warfare, right? What will matter, what does matter in the Autumn Rain trilogy as these two massive superpowers face each other down are – the high ground, right? I mean, the, the invisible topography of the Earth-Moon system is essentially a function of the gravity well and climbing up the gravity well. If you're at the bottom of the gravity well, um, yeah, as noted earlier, <laughs> rods from God, right? People can just, you know, they can either fire lasers at you or just drop stuff down on your head. Yeah. Um, but then you have the moon, which is much higher up, and you also have the libration points, right? The points where essentially the gravity of the moon and the earth are in uh in in bounds uh and so you can l4 and l5 uh in 60 degree angles behind the moon those are particularly strategic mm-hmm. um and you could envision that being that being absolutely militarized i mean sure the outer space treaty of 67 says you know and this is you know a real treaty right it says you can't control any you can't own anything in space but that's going to change once people realize you know, once we get to the point where, and that's the second or third phase of weaponization of space, right? First, the orbits will wet, the low orbits will be weaponized, uh, and then at that point, you know, you're going to see people turning their attention to the geo orbits, to the libration points, to the moon, and saying, "What kind of assets do we need here?" Yeah. And the asteroids as well. Um, Ultimately, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're um, you know, that's a bit beyond the phase of the book, and that, you know. What I was, what I, I wanted to sort of set a demarcation point, right, and say uh, um, asteroid mining plays a big role, right? But say this is a point where humanity essentially has colonized the Earth-Moon system, and and there isn't really 
you, you get reports of what's going on out, outside, you know, in terms of asteroid mining, in terms of, you know, uh, a, a terraforming project that's going on on Mars that, you know, may be serious science and may just be, you know, venture capital speculation, but none of the action ever sort of occurs there. It's always on Earth, on the moon, or on a spaceship in between those two. Right, right. Yeah, I think at one point you have uh, Claire actually purchasing a piece of an asteroid, <laughs> but uh, we won't say why. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it gets gets a little bit back to market shenanigans. But I think the other thing to note here is, you know, even within that that setting, the Earth Moon system, you have a tremendous opportunity for. Um, uh, for, for, for space architecture, for space hardware. I mean, The Mirrored Heavens, the first book features a, uh, uh, a space elevator, you know, not the geo sort, but one that rotates around the Earth. Uh, the Burning Skies, the sequel, I mean, there's a huge amount of action that goes down on an O'Neill cylinder, one of the old O'Neill cylinder space stations <coughs> at uh, L3. Um, and then uh, Machinery of Light, I don't want to sort of, you know, give away any spoilers here, but there's definitely a lot more space shenanigans going on is that is that like a sky hook then if it's or is it on is it like a, a space elevator that's unfixed on the ground yeah i mean you could call you could absolutely a sky hook could absolutely be a legitimate way to describe it i mean basically what, what i was doing is is just saying that um I, I knew i wanted a space elevator in there because it was you know They're awesome cool. and plus i could blow it up hundred pages in, which is even cooler, mm-hmm. it would be the the symbol of this new detente between East and West, between the two superpowers. And when it gets destroyed by terrorist group Autumn Rain, terrorists on steroids, Strike Force Autumn Rain, um, all hell breaks loose. Uh, each side suspects the other. Um, but 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 in looking at it, you know, I mean, obviously we've seen those geo elevators. I mean, you know, starting with Clark and Found It's a Paradise. Um, in looking at it, though, I didn't really think, you know, we're not going to be there in 100 years. We're not going to build something that's, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers long and goes all the way past the geo. And, you know, that just sort of seemed a little bit like, eh, to me. But in looking through the NASA papers, the NASA research papers, I realized one of the interim structures they were talking about was a LEO elevator. It's 4,000 kilometers long. It rotates around the Earth about 12 times a day. Um, and... It obviously is not fixed. It's 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 it, you can lower the point just into the upper atmosphere. The advantage of it, though, the key advantage is that you don't need to reach orbital escape velocity to reach orbit. You just need to reach suborbital escape velocity to get to the lower part of this elevator, and then you can get a, get into orbit. So ultimately, it would be a really cost efficient piece of of infrastructure, even though not quite as dramatic and wild as something that's fixed to the Earth's equator and shoots up like a beanstalk. Right. Mm-hmm. You bet. So if you want to uh, get back to the memory aspect of the book, um, which you said, you know, is pretty much what the book is about, um, you know, Claire Haskell is um, an agent, and um, it says here, all primary briefings of agents take place under the trance, get remembered by those agents only in retrospect. So, um, are you, are these programmable people, basically? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, to call, to call them people, I mean, these are definitely, the, the, these agents are all sort of pushing the verge of post-human in terms of their capabilities and, frankly, in terms of their 
uh, reactions, and in some cases they're emotional reactions. I mean, what you decide is the number one rule that gets introduced very early in the book, like on page two, I think, um, you know, which is to basically say that you know, if if you it, it's it's agent it's espionage paranoia taken to a new level, which is if you're an agent, if I if I'm trying to penetrate your intelligence bureau, I'm a rival intelligence bureau. The best way to do that is to turn one of your agents and then find out who's briefing that agent. Um, now you could, I then could reply by briefing that agent over wires, over the phone, but then I could hack that, right? So at some point there has to be, there should be a real-time interface with whoever you're being briefed by. Um, and so the thought was in order to make that more secure, you know, you basically are doing that to the agent, you know, in their dreams, in the trance. Uh, you send them out to the world, and then they gradually have, you know, partial uh, memory re- recall and start to recall what their briefing actually is. Now, the step beyond that is the one I mentioned earlier, which is to actually start messing with their memories wholesale. And so, Jason Marlowe and Claire Haskell—I mean, these two agents who they used to be lovers—they haven't seen each other in ten years. You know, they're assigned together to stop and find Autumn Rain. Um, so, you know. A little bit tense, a little bit, you know, frisson, you know, being placed in a room with your old flame. But then when they discover that their handlers are actually manipulating their memories, it's like, well, were we ever really lovers? I'm not sure. It's a little weird. That's why, meanwhile, I say it's kind of the James Bond espionage dynamic meets eternal sunshine or spotless mind going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes um, everything questionable. Um you know, what do you think about that aspect of it? I, you know, Philip K. Dick wrote, you know, obviously a lot of things, uh, you know, playing with people's memories and what's real and what's not and what's only in the mind. Um, but, you know, here, you know, everything's questionable. You know, even, yeah. you know, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's it's, it's one of those things where as, as, a, as, a, as an author you want to decide, you know, how much of a mind fuck do you want to indulge in, right? How much How much of that do you want to engage in? Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I drew the line at a certain point, right? In some ways, that's, I think, one more reason why I wrote that book in present tense. You know, it may be a bit of a spoiler to say this, you know, but everything that's written in the book is reliable. Everything that a character thinks is happening to them is actually happening to them. It's not a Philip K. Dick situation. It's not, it's not, I'm not taking it to the Philip K. Dick level of, you know, a hundred pages in, you realize that, you know, it's actually all an alien board game or something like that being played, you know, on a space station whipping around the plant around the, the Beetlejuice or something like that. Um, that said, you know, you have tremendous opportunities for questions and manipulation of what happened. You know, in some ways, the, the Autumn Rain trilogy is about a series of events that occurred ten years before the books began, and within that context. It, you know, it's fair game. It's fair game as far as, well, what really happened there? And everyone has their own theories and everyone has their own part of the puzzle. Um, but, but, but I didn't, I felt like, you know, if I ran the reader through a fight for a hundred pages and then said, actually, that didn't happen. You're, you know, in a submarine. I, I felt that would be going too far. Um, uh, and also wouldn't be necessary to make the point I was making, which is just simply that there is something about, post-human technologies that flatten our perspective that that essentially you know force us to live in a kind of eternal present um that could be a good thing that could be a bad thing depending on your your point of view and perhaps how you interpret buddhism uh but 
it's nonetheless the perspective that these characters have to sort of wrestle through as they're uh, trying to grapple with the fact that, hey, you know, the enemy actually could be inside my head. It's, it's not just – it may not be out there. It may literally be inside my skull as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it says a lot about um, uh, motivation as well. You know, uh, if you kind of uh, put that on to today's world, it's more or less, you know, people, people know what they think that they know and they act on what they think that they know. Um, and often what they know isn't even true. Yeah, yeah, what I mean, they know is their fear. Mm-hmm. What they know is 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 that this is a possibility, and we better protect pr- protect against it. So, uh, case case in point being, you know, we have all this massive technology from space as it is, and yet uh, there were no ma- weapons of mass destruction. Uh, let's start. Let's go in there and make sure they're not there. We're still looking, right? We're mm-hmm. still looking. Uh, a lot of a lot of the. Uh, Modern conflicts since, you know, World War II have sort of been about perception rather than uh, actuality. Yeah, in the case of not finding weapons of mass destruction, they were forced to sort of confront the the reality of that. Although, again, look at, you know, even as that as a sort of shifting, you know, hall of mirrors. I mean, because in a certain sense, the whole, you know, are there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? I mean, it's an interesting case study because it kind of misses the point. I mean, of course there were weapons of mass destruction. I mean, you know, we, we, we know there were weapons of mass destruction. We sold them to him. We have the receipts, yeah. right? <laughs> but at some point he did something with those things um, and, you know, maybe destroyed them all or whatever the case might be. Um, and so in a certain sense, it's kind of, you know, paranoia turned inward upon itself. That's right. Um, again, though, I mean... But also, like, uh, I'm thinking, like, the Vietnam Vietnam War. I mean, this, if we think back and we think, geez, you know, this, was this a good idea or a bad idea? Obviously, now it was, a, it was kind of a bad idea, whereas I think with Korea, it was clearly a good idea. You know, the, the, the difference between uh, uh, the North Korean regime and the Vietnamese regime is that, uh, you know, uh, you could live in Vietnam now. Uh, you would not want to live in North, Vietnam, uh, North Korea now. And and the the perception in in the in the case of Korea would be like, uh, you know, we we are actually underfunding their military, the South Korean military, and in the case of the the you know South Vietnam, we're overfunding their military, um, mm-hmm. and in and the the separate results are are about the misperception or the perception of uh, you know the the third party, which is you know the United States government or whichever inter you know whoever else intervenes the russians or whoever is is, is this um yeah it's it's not an ideology based thing in in uh, your series right it's it's uh, or or is it you can certainly i mean i think the i think uh, i think a lot of the characters would tell you it is i mean it's interesting in that you know i mean it, like i said this is nation states on steroids right so this is the us 100 years from now it's kind of made that transition a la Rome from a republic to an empire. Um, and, and yeah, although it's never really talked about, I mean, the supposition is that, you know, the soldiers in particular, the citizens feel an intense kind of patriotism. It's a very militarized society. It's been militarized by uh, constant external threat across, you know, several decades. Um, and, at the same time, I mean, you know, from an ideological perspective, it's interesting because the characters themselves don't evince that ideology as much. I mean, 
one senses with the characters that the real thing they're loyal to is less, you know, though they fight and die for the United States. Um, the, 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 the aspect of cyberpunk that gets in there is the alienation, right? There's no reason why servants of the government can't be, you know, alienated and wondering who their bosses really are and what they're doing and are their bosses plotting against them and what's going on. And so there is a sort of raw cynicism that pervades that. Ultimately, I think what they're loyal to is the peak experience, is, is the run itself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a hacker doing the uh, doing the, the, the doing this rush into the zone, as I call it, cyberspace, but I call it the zone. If you're a mech going in there on an infiltration run, those are the sort of highs, almost a kind of drug-like euphoria. And a lot of the times with combat or performance enhancement drugs, it is a drug experience. It can be evaluated as a drug experience. And one senses that's what those, are, those characters are living for, that, you know, it's a little like the Gibran quote, right? We, we, we live to experience wa- uh, beauty. All else is a form of waiting. These guys live to experience the rush. Everything in between that is a kind of waiting. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, it, it's interesting, you know, the future of the Internet, you know, in science fiction, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that addresses it in all kinds of different ways. But in, in your future, everybody's kind of got, you, you called it a zone. Everybody's kind of got a zone. And there are some some zones that are hidden from other zones. Um, but all this is information traffic, right? But, but when you say that um, warfare will go into cyberspace, um, could you elaborate on that just a little bit? You know, what, what exactly would be happening there? People just trying to shut down, you know, like right now, uh, you could launch an attack on a website and basically take them off the Internet. Or you could uh, try to uh, break down their computers by sending them viruses and things like that. Are you talking about an intensification of that kind of a thing? Yeah, I'm talking about an intensification of that by the resources of governments and nation states and the infrastructure of governments. So, for example, and we're, and we're seeing that already, right? I mean, yeah. um, China. China arguably is, you know, the, 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 launching a continual attack on Pentagon servers. Um, and you can get, you know, absolute peaks of that, right? I mean, when, when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, they shut down the Georgian net. Uh, that was just part of the strategy. And the internet in Georgia went offline completely. Um, it, it, it's, it's that sort of thing that we're talking about and really, now. And really, it's dangerous because the economy is thriving on the internet or it's it's surviving on the internet it's dangerous because the economy it it, there's two levels of it right i mean the the sort of surreptitious hack that you might be able to pull yeah i mean maybe you pull a few plugs here and the power grid goes out or something like that but an all-out offensive i mean it's dangerous because in the same way that an emp pulse above the continental u.s would be dangerous right i mean it could literally paralyze infrastructure completely it could literally you know, you you could decapitate the leadership with with a massive cyber offensive. Again, you know, several decades from now, uh, orchestrated by another rival superpower. Done correctly, you could literally uh, decapitate that nation without firing a shot. Um, that's what's dangerous about. And that's it. because it's, everything's gone electronic. You know, including your pickup trucks or whatever. Um, exactly. Everything's exactly. got chips in it, right? Everything's got chips, and you need you need chips to communicate. Ultimately, you may you know I may be able to get my toaster to function or to open a can of cat food without the net, but it's really tough for us 
<clears throat> excuse me, it's really tough for us, thousands of miles away from one another, to talk without the internet. Um, so it, it, it absolutely is a new front of warfare. It's absolutely a, a critical front of warfare. And the question is how far that's going to go. I mean, in, um, in the mirrored heavens, in the world of autumn rain, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's literally got to the point where the worldwide net has been sundered, has fractured along geopolitical lines. You have an eastern net and you have a western net, and there aren't a huge amount of connections between them. Now, to get to that extent, you would be assuming it's going to occur in tandem with a near-total breakdown of globalization. Um, if you believe in peak oil, which I intend to, uh, I think that's not entirely out of the question um, as far as you know uh, logistics and transportation costs. But yeah, I mean, basically, you have national firewalls. You have the United States net, and they control everything within it. Um, and and the Eastern Net. And these guys really aren't talking to each other one, uh, very much because they have totally different hardware, <coughs> software, uh, and presumably totally different virus protocols as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, you, you, you've, you've touched on so many uh, different aspects of what future warfare would look like in these what, what I was trying to do is, is like build an integrated theory of that, right, is, is that – you know, because I find with a lot of science fiction, they, they, they pay huge amounts of attention to the science, and there's endless sort of argument. If you put a laser on the stage, right, there's endless arguments about what type of laser that is, and, you know, would it have the megawattage to hit this at this range? But there's very little discussion about, well, what are the strategic implications of having a laser that can do that, and what's controlling it, and what is the larger command apparatus of which it's a part, and what are the re- what are the strategy implications of having uh, speed of light weaponry? You know, I was really trying to delve deep into a lot of those, you know, uh, uh, social science questions, if you will, geopolitical questions, and try and come up with a plausible world at the end result. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. So um, let, let's talk about quickly. Um, you went to a Clarion workshop, is that right? I went to Clarion, yeah, in the yeah, summer of. In Seattle in 2007. That's cool. What what was that experience like? It was great. It was um it was a um <clears throat> excuse me it was a um it was a surreal experience. I mean and and I would I would recommend Clarion for anyone trying to sort of take their writing to the next level. I I, I had a very unusual Clarion experience in that you know I had uh, uh, when I applied to it I had a manuscript and was shopping it around and wasn't getting much love and you know was thinking you know gee i need to write a bunch of great short stories that'll get attention here by the time i got to clarion that summer i had an agent and i had a three book deal with bantam spectra so it was it was very bizarre and you know i wisely didn't walk in on the first day and tell everyone that because i knew that would be a great way to get me tossed into the pacific ocean um (laughs) not be the most popular guy in the class um so, 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 so for me, it was a bit strange. I mean, it was I, I learned a tremendous amount about writing and you know getting to. I mean, I'd never had even been to critique groups before, so it was a huge, you know, uh, epiphany for me to sort of get in there and have my you know writing critiqued by others and critique others and you know, have a kind of camaraderie of writers. You know, because I, I work you know for years back here in comparative isolation, um, but at the same time, I can't really say that. If the objective of Clarion is to have you come out of there writing great short stories, you know, I haven't done that, right? I mean, I sort of, I, I wonder if that may not be really my skill set, ultimately. You know, I, I sort of, 
look more like at a Richard Morgan who writes novels but has never written a short story and I'm, you know, uh, not sure he has intentions to do so. That's kind of, you know, I, I, where I sort of come out is, you know, I, I tend to be more comfortable with the longer formats. That said, Clarion was awesome. It was some of the best six weeks of my life. Uh, and Seattle's a tremendous city. Yeah. So now you've got uh, the Machinery of Light coming out this week. Um, what's next? The Machinery of Light, yeah, comes out on Tuesday and that completes the uh, the Autumn Rain trilogy. And, uh, um, and and I do need to move beyond that, right? Because it really does conclude it. I mean, we I know we get a lot in science fiction of these kind of yeah. never-ending series or, you know... You, yeah, I greatly appreciate that. You know, it's... <laughs> It's not like you read it and you realize, actually, there's going to be a whole second trilogy, which it'll progress to. Um, I really wanted to sort of wrap everything up and, uh, and, and do it in a way that made sense, you know, that, that wasn't just sort of pretending that stuff happened in books one and two that I then can't explain. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, in a sense, uh, I need to sort of figure out what's next. I, I'm looking at – I don't know if science fiction novels are next. I mean, I'm looking at writing a uh, – a dark fantasy series. Uh, I'm also looking at moving on potentially to uh, screenplays uh, or graphic novels. Um, your guess is as good as mine, in a sense, because what what I'm sort of struggling with right now is these are characters I spent you know ten years with, and now I'm kind of saying goodbye to them. So it's a bit of a transition, a bit of a bittersweet transition beyond that, yeah. uh, in that they made it into the real world, and now I need to sort of you know figure out what's next for me specifically. And continue my journey without them. It's got to be a struggle, you know, for the for authors to have spent that much time building a world, and then um, you know it makes you understand why some of these series just go on and on and on. You know, for one thing, they've got to be selling, huh. right? <laughs> People have got to be buying them, and uh, but but to to put in that much stuff, and you know, it I think it says a lot when an author says, "Okay, I've got nothing more to say about this. I'm going to go ahead and move on." Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It, I think psychologically, it's tough, right? I mean, it's bittersweet, and that you know these characters did what they were supposed to, mm-hmm. and they got out there into the world, and you know they weren't just meant to stay in my head, right? They were meant to get out there on the pages. They were meant to get out into bookstores, um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, you, you, I think in order to respect one's characters, you know, unless you are envisioning kind of just turning it into a gravy train for life. Um, you need to kind of finish their story. They, 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 you began their story. You owe it to yourself and the readers to finish their story. Um, and that's, that's what I've uh, uh, done with, uh, with, with Machinery of Light where you know, this is on the back cover so I'm not really giving you know, anything away as far as spoilers. I mean you, know, you, you do have these two superpowers go to war. I mean it's not just theory at that point. It's World War III across the Earth-Moon system. That's obviously just the backdrop to the struggle of the characters and the quest of the characters in the foreground – uh, because Autumn Rain is still active, uh, but it's pure pandemonium, and in a sense, nothing can top that. You can't write. You can't write about the war to end all wars in book three, and then go do a book four. You're, you're kind of done. It's like it's like the rock band, you know, destroying the stage in the last few minutes of the show. Uh, that's it. You know, it's over and good night. And thank you very much. Right. Well, I am definitely looking forward to reading uh, the Burning Skies and the Machinery of Light. So. Thank you so very much for uh, joining us today. Excellent, gentlemen. It's it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on board. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>